0: Well, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn in Luke, uh, to Luke chapter twelve, verses thirty-five through forty-eight. Luke chapter twelve, verses thirty-five through forty-eight. We are continuing our way through Luke's Gospel, and here specifically in chapter twelve, we're in the section where Jesus has has been teaching. Um, Not only his disciples, but also the crowd. And he's sort of been going back and forth between his audience. And here we see him really doing the same thing. As he uh, gives us two parables, two parables, which speak about his second coming. The second coming, which we have already heard about in a number of other passages in, in Scripture. So Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, please pay careful attention for this is the word of our God. Jesus says this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, in first reading this passage, these parables seem uh, pretty straightforward. In fact, they seem to be communicating a, a rather elementary point. That Christ is going to come back and that he's going to come back in a day and hour that we do not know. And as a consequence, we are to be prepared. We are to be watchful for that day. Now this is true. This passage is, is definitely not less than this point. But I believe that these parables are communicating much more some truths that are much deeper than, than what we see even on the surface. In fact, I believe these, these parables communicate truths such as what it means to be made in the image of God, communicates the truth of the gospel and, and of leadership in the church, or more accurately, abusive leadership in the church. Therefore, I'd like to press a bit deeper into these two parables. Uh, a little bit uh, behind the surface and see how the rest of Scripture really interprets and and brings to light how paradigmatic these stories truly are. So first I want us to consider how this, this, especially this first parable, is a parable about the image of God. Now Jesus, the context of this first parable is a great estate. An estate that... Uh, employs a number of, of servants. Servants who keep the ground. Servants who, who clean the uh, the home or the residence. Servants who guard the grounds from intruders, from those who should not, not be there. All these servants are, are serving the master and his family. And, and in this parable, Jesus says that this master is going to a wedding feast and tells these servants that they are to continue in their jobs. They are to continue to promote the flourishing of this estate. They are to guard the estate while he's gone and make sure that no intruders enter the premises. And these servants do not know the, 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 the specific hour in which their master will return. And so they are to remain watchful and expectant the coming of their master. They are not to sleep until he comes home. Now this word that Luke begins in verse 35 begins our passage with when he says, stay dressed for action. This word in the original Greek is one word. And what it means literally is is something like gird up your loins. Now, in the ancient world, it was quite common for individuals to wear long garments that would go down to one's ankles. And if you are needing to travel a great distance or if you are needing to work and move around quite a bit, having long robes that go down to your ankles are not quite conducive for uh, being mobile. And so what people would do is they would gird up their loins. They would take the garments and tie them up around their waist so that their legs could have more mobility. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, say, dress for action, gird up your loins. And this word is also used in Exodus chapter 12 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament uh, was originally written in Hebrew, but then at a later point in time, it was translated into uh, the Greek language. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, God commands the Israelites during their first Passover Uh, to gird up their loins as they await a speedy exit out of Egypt. Astonishingly then, as we continue in this parable, we read that if these servants fulfill their job faithfully, if the master returns and finds them awake, finds that no intruder has entered the premises, they have kept all things in, in order, then we see in verse, um, uh, verse 39 or 37, I believe, we read that when he returns, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve him. Now, this phrase, he will dress himself for service, is that same word that Luke used in verse 35 that's used in Exodus chapter 12. Thus, this master will himself gird up his loins and serve this great banquet for his servants and he will wait upon them. It's astonishing. Now, in many ways, Jesus, I believe, is thinking of himself here in this passage as the master And these servants are, yes, the disciples, but broadly speaking, all people. All people, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and 2, have a natural knowledge of of God and thus are accountable. And these servants, as Luke clearly articulates for us, they were called to a certain job. They knew what the will of their master was. They were to promote the flourishing of this estate and they were to guard the premises of that estate. And if they did this faithfully, they would enjoy a great reward, a banquet in which the master would serve them. But if they failed to do this, they'd be punished. Therefore, there's a cycle of work, judgment, and reward. Work, judgment, and reward. And I believe that this paradigm is really the paradigm of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now think back with me to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God presents himself as a God who works. That's the first thing that we learn about God in scripture. He's a God who works. He exercises a benevolent dominion over his creation. And six times in Genesis 1, we not only hear that God works, but he judges his work. He declares it to be good. And at the end of his creation, he declares it to be very good. So God works, but he also puts his work under judgment. And after his work has stood the test, it's deemed to be very good, he himself enters this eternal seventh day Sabbath rest. Now, obviously there's much that that has been said about these creation days, but in some ways we know the most about the seventh day. We know that that day is eternal. God is still in his seventh day rest. The reason why it's the seventh day is seven in scripture denotes perfection. This is God's perfect Sabbath rest. So the paradigm that we see Characterized in God himself in Genesis 1 is this cycle of work, judgment, and reward. And so in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, we we learn that God, uh, God says this, he says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, in the the pinnacle of his creation, he creates mankind, male and female, and he he says that man is made in his image and likeness. Now, what do you think the image of God will entail? Well, it entails a certain kind of work. God himself explicitly says that man is to have dominion dominion over the creatures. A dominion that mirrors the benevolent dominion of God himself over his creation. Continue in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. Uh, God's, uh, uh, we learn this. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. God made man to do a work And the contours, the the description of this work is that Adam was to work the garden. You could say promote the flourishing of the Garden of Eden just as those servants were called to promote the flourishing of the estate and make sure the estate was, was running in good order. But Adam also was called to guard the garden. To guard the garden from all that which is unholy from intruders that were not supposed to be there. And we know that Adam's work was going to come under judgment. Judgment by God. Thus, in the narrative of Genesis 1-3, through we see that, that judgment taking place in Genesis 3. We see that Adam fails in this job. He is the unfaithful servant of the estate. And he allows the intruder to come into the premises of the garden. And he gives in to the temptation and betrays his creator and master. And God comes in judgment. We know that if Adam would have persevered in faithfulness, God would have judged his work, and if he would have been deemed faithful, he would have entered into the seventh day rest. But that didn't happen. God comes uh, with curse. Not ultimate curse, not final judgment. God in his common grace delays that until the end of the ages, the return of Christ. But thus we see in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, What it means to be an image bearer of God is we have this cycle of work, judgment, and reward or punishment written upon our hearts, imprinted upon our nature. Now we obviously know this is true in an ultimate level. We have the law of God written upon our hearts. We know the will of our master by nature. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. Even the Gentiles, the pagans, know the law of God. And we also know that Christ is coming again and we all will face judgment. Our work, as it were, will be judged. We either will enter into this great reward of, of the new creation or we will be cast into the lake of fire. So this is true on ultimate level. But I also think it's true on a more ordinary day-to-day level. Think about how often our mind is, is thinking about the future. Whether it be explicit or even just implicit goals, we're always thinking about that next thing. Whether it be getting through this present season of life or, or getting to that next goal or benchmark, whether it be in your career, and your personal lives, if you're single, it's marriage, and then it's starting a family, it's homeownership, it's getting your families through the house, into college, independent, self-sustained. There's always that next thing that we're looking towards. We never are truly in a place of complete rest and satisfaction. We always have that goal that we're striving for, those greener pastures that we're looking towards. And there's those moments where we reach that pasture. We have that Implicit judgment, we've attained the goal. We might enjoy the rest, the satisfaction for a split second. But then almost immediately, our eyes catch the pasture next door that's a big greener that we're trying to strive towards. We're constantly in this cycle of work, judgment, and rest or reward. And thus this parable, in, in, many, in, in a lot of ways, is a parable about our human nature, the image of God. As we mirror the God who worked, who judged his work and entered into his reward. Well, this parable is also a parable about the gospel. As I mentioned, this this parable about servants in an estate in a lot of ways mirrors the Garden of Eden. The garden is like the estate Adam is the servant, and he's called to promote the flourishing of this garden, to guard the garden. We know what happened, we know that he failed, but as we fast forward in redemptive history, we see that there's another estate. There's another garden, as it were, and that's the land of Canaan. As the people of God continue to grow and progress into the nation of Israel, and they enter this holy land of Canaan, this land is represented in many ways as a new garden of Eden. There's many uh, literary connections between the garden and the land. For instance, Genesis 1, before the garden of Eden even really exists, the prelude to the garden is God separating the waters in creation. What's the prelude to Israel going into the land of Canaan? The splitting of the Red Sea. We learn that the land of Canaan and the Garden of Eden are full of precious metals, full of good fruit and food. Uh, We know that they both are well watered. So there's many similarities. I think scripture is wanting to present the land of Canaan, this is a new Garden of Eden. And we also see that when Adam fails and when Israel fails, they're both exiled to the east. Israel goes off to Babylon and Assyria Adam is exiled east of Eden. But in that exile, they both are are given promises of future redemption and grace. And so Israel also is brought into this new garden. Israel also is called to be a servant in the Lord's estate. And the estate is this holy land of Canaan. And they also are called to promote the flourishing of this land. They also are called to guard this land from that which is unholy to guard the land from defilement. It's one of the, way, one of the reasons why Joshua was called to uh, lead this conquest of these pagan nations. It was to be a holy land. It was to be a pure theocracy. In fact, in Genesis 2.15, as I alluded to earlier, uh, Adam was called to guard the garden. Now that same word for guard is given to describe the job description of the priests in the land of Canaan. They are called to guard the holy things from the unholy. We see an example of that with, with Phineas in Numbers when uh, there's a certain Israelite who's having sexual relations with a foreigner. The people of God were not to intermarry at that time and he goes and slays these two individuals and, and the text says that this was a righteous act on Phineas the priest's part. you are left wondering why. Why? Well, What's going on here? Well, you have to recognize that he was tasked to guard this estate, to guard the holy things from that which is unholy. Well, as we know, Israel fails just as Adam fails. Israel is not able to, to maintain a long life in this new garden of Eden. They're exiled to the east as Adam was exiled to the east. God comes, the master comes in judgment because they fail to do the will of, of him. And therefore, this sets us up for the ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes as the true image of God. He comes as the true servant of God, the second Adam and the true Israel of God. He comes to do the work of the law, the law that Adam failed to do, the law that Israel failed to do. He comes to guard his own body, which is the temple of God, from defilement. And when you continue on to Good Friday, the pinnacle of his his life, if you think of it as a a trial, that time between Good Friday and Easter is, is sort of like the time when the jury is in deliberation. Jesus has finished his earthly ministry. He's claimed to live a perfect life. He's claimed to die for the sins of all of his people. And we're waiting for the verdict. Will God accept this sacrifice. And the resurrection then is the judge coming out and announcing the verdict of, of justified, vindicated. He truly did live the perfect life. The death satisfied the sins of his people. And Jesus, after his resurrection, ascends to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. What does that denote? Rest. The first human being who was able to work, pass through judgment, and enter into rest. The first human being to ever do that. To truly fulfill that, that part of the image of God. That which we were destined to do. Well, this text, as I've already alluded to, calls us, the main imperative is that we are to gird up our loins. We are to gird up our loins. I've already said that this is used in reference to the Exodus in Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites were to be ready to flee Egypt in preparation for this great act of deliverance and salvation that God would act on their behalf. But we too are called to gird up our loins in preparation for this greater act of deliverance and redemption that we are awaiting at the second coming of Christ when he truly will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not looking forward to a piece of real estate in, in Palestine. We're looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So the way in which we, are, we ready ourselves, the way in which we gird up our loins, as it were, is by professing faith in this Jesus. This faith includes a certain knowledge. We need to know what Christ came to do. He came to do a work that we couldn't do. He came to die the death that we deserve to die. We have to assent. We have to actually believe that these things are true. But most importantly, we have to trust. We have to rest in it for ourselves personally. And the promise of Scripture is that when we do this, when we truly profess faith in Jesus, that rest which we failed to obtain on our own breaks into this present evil age. The rest which Christ alone achieved is ours by faith. We, in a very real sense, have one foot in the age to come while still having one foot in this present evil age. We have an irrevocable spot reserved for us at this great banquet. A banquet in which Christ himself will gird up his loins and serve us as his bride. It's almost as if, uh, it's almost as if, if you think in, in in terms of the parable, the master, or those of us who have faith, it's like the master sending his closest friend back to the estate and saying, Make sure that my servants don't mess this up. They don't let anybody in that shouldn't be in, that they keep things in order because I want to celebrate with them. Jesus does that by sending us the Spirit. The Spirit who is the guarantor of this final rest, the guarantor of this banquet. He is the one who causes us to continue to persevere in faith. Will we still transgress this veil of tears? So there is a sense in which Jesus, yes, is is the master, but he also is the servant in this parable. Because he himself assumes the servant before his father. He comes to this earth. He comes into the estate of his father and fulfills our job description so that we might dine with him in the age to come. Well, you'll notice in your, in your Bibles that Peter, he, uh, he hears this, this parable, this first parable, and he, he says to uh, Jesus, Lord, are you, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, of course, one commentator has noted, which I think is quite insightful, Jesus has, Peter may be remembering what Jesus has already said about the parables of our Lord. Jesus did not speak in parables in order to illuminate His teaching, he spoke in parables in order to conceal his teaching. So Peter's probably thinking, okay, Lord, you're probably speaking in this concealed manner for all those people out there. You know, you don't want those people to know when you're actually going to come back, but aren't you going to whisper in our ears? Aren't you going to tell us the secrets, the mysteries of your will? Now the second parable is then in response to Peter's question, and, and Jesus doesn't, Necessarily respond directly, but now he, he gives a parable set in the same context, but now he's speaking more directly to the disciples, to the twelve, and by extension to all leaders in, in the Christian church. In verse 48, at the end of this parable, Jesus gives a, a principle. He says that we'll be judged in proportion to our knowledge. We'll be judged in proportion to our knowledge. And in this, this, this parable, uh, I said it, it uses the same context as the first parable. So there's this great estate, there's a master who is gone, but instead of referring to servants, he now refers to the managers of the servants. And thus, I believe he, he has in mind the 12, those who will take over the mission of Christ after he ascends into heaven, and then by extension, all leaders, under shepherds and in the Christian church. And Jesus gives three different scenarios of, of managers and their performance in this household. And we see that the will of the master here is to feed the household and to watch over, steward the possessions while the master is away. And now we see that this first manager, he, uh, he is the, the most wicked of these managers. He realizes that the master is gone, and so he thinks that this is his time to do what he wants. Instead of feeding the household, he fills his stomach. He gets drunk himself. He uses the resources which are to serve the many to serve himself. He abuses, beats the other servants who are under his charge. We read that the harshest punishment is reserved for this manager. This manager will be cut in pieces at the second coming of Christ. In many ways, this is speaking to leaders in the church who, um, again, rather than feeding the people of God with the law and the gospel, use the church to serve themselves and be a platform for their their own ego. It's a church that uh, perpetuates an abusive and toxic environment. Well, the second scenario is also about a manager, but this manager is, is negligent. He sort of disregards the will of his master, but he doesn't do as harsh of things as the first manager. He doesn't necessarily abuse the, the servants under his charge. He just fails to, to act according to his will. In many ways, this would be uh, the church that, that doesn't perpetuate abusive environment. It just fails to do and operate according to the, the will of Christ. Really, it's just a social club, a country club, rather than uh, a place where uh, the word is, is preached, the sacraments are administered, and the people of God are shepherd and cared for. And the last scenario is another manager who is negligent, but this time... He, rather than disregarding the will of his master, is just ignorant of the will of his master. And he still is punished, but he receives a less severe punishment. As I mentioned, I believe Jesus' focus here is on the twelve. The twelve disciples who will take over this mission of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this context, it's, it's striking, as one commentator has noted, to... To consider the imagery that Jesus puts forward for a manager, that is to say, a pastor of, of the Christian church. Pa- uh, the manager here is to steward the possessions of, of his master, as well as to feed the household. Now remember our Lord's interaction with Peter after his resurrection. He's restoring Peter after Peter denied him three times, and, and Peter... Uh, he asked Peter, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and Peter said, of, of course I do. Of course I do. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's at the heart of the Christian ministry. To feed the people of God with both the law and the gospel. That's at the heart of the will of Christ for his church in this age. Faithfully feed God's people. But we all can probably think of instances that where one of these three scenarios has played out to some degree or another in in the church in our own day and age. We may have even experienced such instances in our own past. Uh, Times where uh, the word of God was not preached, but disregarded. Times in in, in which an abusive and toxic environment was perpetuated and in some ways even covered up and promoted. I believe this is one of the main reasons why so many people in our day and age are so cynical when it comes to the institutional church. A lot of Christians don't have a problem with the universal church. When it comes to the actual institutional church that meets uh, in an embodied local manner, people are cynical because there's been so much abuse and wrongdoings in really every tradition. We can think of many instances in the Roman Catholic Church, but we as Protestants haven't done much better. Of course, we can't read hearts. We can't see a church implode and say, aha, that's the first manager. They're going to be cut to pieces at the end of the age. This forgiveness is always offered to those who who repent and, and turn from their sins. However, what this does teach us is that our Lord Jesus Christ, he cares about the purity of his church. He cares about justice and he cares about the members, the sheep in his fold, and especially those who are weak, those who've been abused, those who've been hurt. In that sense, we do see the heart of of our Lord and we are reminded that Jesus is still the king of his church. Jesus is the king of his kingdom and he is ultimately in control. So beloved in the Lord, these parables that Jesus teaches us here this evening are are parables that, that teach us about what it means to be made in the image of God. It teaches us more about the true image bearer of God, Jesus Christ, as he came to this earth to earn that Sabbath rest for those who turn to him by faith. And these parables also express Christ's desire for his church to be cared for in his absence. So let us-